You want to take it away? No, you go ahead. You're the big intro guy. <laughs> I don't really have an intro here, but... <laughs> All right. Yeah, Pete, appreciate you being on. Um, I guess first things first, for people who aren't familiar with you, like, have you always been a pitcher? Have you always focused on baseball, or were you a multi-sport guy growing up? Um, I was not a pitcher. Well, I pitched, but that was not, like, what I cared about, gave a shit about. Um, I played three sports up until I was in high school and I just played basketball and baseball. Um, didn't really like full-time pitch until I was a freshman. I was a catcher up until then. Yeah, and that's my basic, my basic athletic backstory. A lot of basketball, a lot of baseball. Yeah, fun, fun story. Pete got dunked on by Bradley Beal in high school. Such a lie you couldn't even pronounce <laughs> on correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Such a blatant lie, you couldn't even say it right. All right, he took a charge. There we go. Whatever, it's his claim to fame. We lost. But but Pete, big-time Hooper. Yes. Would you say you like basketball more than baseball? There are things about it that I like more. Um, you can't, not can't, but the, it's not as baseball, as much as I love baseball, is not, doesn't always hit my competitive juices like basketball does. It's Baseball's not as, I mean, it's a very one-on-one -on -one personal sport, but it's like distanced. Right, whereas basketball, you're in the thick of it, you know, whenever you're out there. Yeah, talk a little bit about, about the competitive side because that's something that like people see that maybe watching you pitch, but then like getting to know you off the field, it's complete a completely different vibe. So like, have you always been that competitive and had zero problem flipping the switch? Like, is that something that came really natural to you, or have you had to learn how to tap into that on the mound? Yeah, I, there's, it's I will flip the switch for anything be it um i actually so so when my wife and i were dating this is probably like five or six years ago now and we're playing rummy cube which is basically gin rummy with tiles and i am in full competitive form because i if there's any sort of competition right that's just how i am it doesn't matter what it is when it is you know it could be flipping a stupid water bottle something like that i'm gonna try and beat whoever i'm up against and so we're playing with one of Lid's oldest childhood friends and she's like, I don't think this is a, the right fit for you. And it's like, <laughs> I think you got him at a wrong time. Uh, and so, yeah, I, the, the switch flips. I'm, I wouldn't say chill, but like, I'm, a, I'm not the same cat, you know, here talking on a podcast, you know, that I would be out there if we were playing spike ball since I saw that Zombro is a rumored plus plus spike ball. That's player. not a rumor. That's a fact. It's a fact. That is a fact. So it's a self is self-appointed. It is. It is. <laughs> but I, I agree with your point. Uh, I think we said this last night at dinner. You got to check out to check in. So what what's your what's your check in moment? My check in moment. Um, I don't know. There's like stages of it, right? Where I'm like once I would say once I throw like my last um, plyos and wherever it is, bullpen in our back room at the trop. After that, it, it's it's locked in. Like that's about you know you get to the seventh and the joking's done. You know you're you're down there and you're ready at that point. You're waiting for you know I give myself I throw my plyos. I give myself about a half inning to just sit down, lock in, and then after that I start going through my routine whenever the phone rings. How how beneficial do you find it to have such a I don't want to call it an alter ego. Because it is, it is part of who you are. But, like, how, 
how beneficial is it for you to be the person you are off the field and then have that ability to turn it on? Because I'm, you know, a lot of guys who are right. always turned on, right? And you get tired of them. But how how beneficial is that for you? Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think that you can do what we do without, you know, being some moderately. Like yeah, they, obviously there's people who are, you know, basically the same guy on the mound, off the mound, wherever, but I don't know, to pitch in, in situations where the shit matters and, you know, you got to tap into everything you've got, it, I don't think that you can live life, you know, like that. It, it's not a sustainable um, type thing. And it's, I don't know, it just helps me kind of compartmentalize, you know, everything that I'm doing in the baseball field ends at the baseball field and I can leave it there Right. Obviously, there's some carryover, bad outings, et cetera. But, you know, you do your best to to figure out how to take that, separate it, you know, leave it at the field or you know, when you get out of your car at home, whatever, you know, and go out and, and live the rest of your life. And then obviously you check back in. Right. And that seventh inning rolls around and, and you're right back to it. The, the wife and two kids. Does that help now? Yeah. I mean, it's having a I don't think that I'd be a really bad parent if I parented like I do uh if you parented like, like pitch, you pitch, yeah. you'd be brutal oh I'd be horrible um I would be the physical altercations with children and that, we can't do that I I told him this last night um and I'm not going to name names on the podcast but I've named them to you we may or may not have had a couple guys in from the AL East this offseason and this was <laughs> around the time that Pete had come in and he had just stayed with me and they saw him or whatever and uh one of the guys that I work with asked me, he was like, hey, man, like, what do you got on Fairbanks? And I was like, oh, I, I really like Pete, like, intelligent guy, like, can have really, really in-depth discussions. Like, I thoroughly enjoy it. High IQ guy, right? And they're like, oh, like, I didn't think he was like that. I just thought he was an asshole. <laughs> yeah, Yarb's got the uh, same thing, actually. We went to Kansas City. Um, got some... Yeah, some people asking about my uh, if I was as, as your unhinged. Man, your if my mannerisms, if I was more or less as unhinged as uh, right. I appear at times. I, I told him, I said, look, just make sure you don't call time too much to, <laughs> to step out of the box. You saw that. Uh, it was the uh, Baltimore series. Right. You can pull the video for the podcast. It'll be, a, it'll be a good one. It's, it was a funny one. You'll see Pete in, in good form. How, how would you describe your, so people can kind of like relate a little bit to watching you pitch, but like, how would you describe your own mentality on the mound? Are you angry or hyper aggressive? Are you like, like cursing the batter under your breath? Like, are, is it like you versus him? Like what's going on in your mind? Or are you not even really thinking, registering it on that um, side of things? I mean, there's an element to it, right? But for me, what I've found is I am, I have one singular thing that I tell myself that I focus on and that is attacking the strike zone. And everything else, obviously two strikes, it becomes a little bit more like, yeah, try and hit this, right? But for me, attacking the zone is where I have found that I keep, you know, my best headspace. It's not, it does not become like this personal battle against people. It doesn't become overly emotional, et cetera. It is me and attacking the strike zone. And then, you know, everything else that comes out of that comes out of that whenever, you know, you, you get to a moment, a big spot, whatever, 
you know, that's when the, the emotions and everything, you know, kind of come out. But for me, whenever I go out there, it is I am attacking the strike zone. This is what I'm doing, and I'm going to commit to it and continually try and throw the ball over the plate. Have you experimented with maybe being like as amped up as possible or like in that hey, I'm angry at the batter? Like, have you have you played on both ends of the spectrum and found that like when you may, when you get over that certain threshold, it's too much or is for you? They're not a, not such a thing as being too amped up. Um, yes and no. I haven't tried to necessarily experiment with it. There's times where I feel like I'm too low and something snaps me back into um like that ideal state but i would say that the more emotional and angry the worse i pitch so that's why i try and give myself something outside of that that's i am committed to this and this alone and it doesn't matter what they do it doesn't matter what the umpire does it doesn't matter what the people behind me do it is me the baseball and attacking the strike zone i think um we can we can give Snides a little ego boost no, in yeah. this podcast. I give Snides ego boosts all the time. Well, I mean, just talk about coming from Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know your shit's been really good for a while. But talk about going to Tampa, what that was like, working with Snides. Because I, people from the outside don't probably understand that dynamic. Yeah. Walk us through it. Um, so I, I will put it on record. I put it on. Pal Snyder is the best pitching coach I've ever met. And I don't know if anybody will ever be that like his his blend and what he does from the personal to understanding how things work when throwing your baseball is the best i've ever encountered and he for me like personally for me what his message was and he's said it since 2019 now he ever it's just hit my shit right his message to me is take what you got and tell him to try and fucking hit it and I, for me that resonates right because that's like a that's more of like a, you know, a basketball like competitive mentality than it is, you know, a, a true pitching one is here. It's me versus you, throw the ball over the plate, see what you got. Um, and that was something that I not necessarily didn't get with Texas. I kind of got in my own way there at times in terms of getting too involved into what other people think I should be doing. Um, I had Eric Gagne told me when I first got called up, he's like, never look at a scouting report. And so naturally I went up and I read the scouting reports that told me to throw down and away fastballs, even though I throw carry balls, right? And that, you know, kind of got in my own head there, tried to do too much for the time that I was with Texas, get traded. Um, I was still had some struggles at first with Tampa, still um, over the next few years. But, you know, that mentality of hit my shit, I think is one of the best things that's happened to me. And obviously Snides is the number one reason behind that. Talk about that that balance between, you know, the analytics, the data side, like obviously, you know, you, you have some interest in that side of things, but at the same time, like what you're describing is very much like a simplified approach. It's not trying to be super fine. It's not trying to nibble. It's not necessarily trying to, it doesn't sound like you're obsessing about all the little details. Or how do you how do you kind of balance those two things of, of making it, this desire to make it complex versus this desire to simplify it? Um, yeah, I don't really think so this is going to sound not sound bad when you get the ball on the mound analytics don't mean shit right all that does is tell you what your stuff does it's your job to go out there and compete because that's what at the end of the day it matters is do you get the outs when it counts right when you're on that mound and you're faced up against somebody do you get the outs right i can throw 24 balls in a bullpen and you know 
throw a sweeper, throw a cutter, whatever, right? But if I go out there and I'm consumed by, you know, data and, and feeling like what I'm doing is in like, like letting the minutiae become, you know, the, the main portion, that doesn't help anybody, right? My job is to go out there and get people out. And so that's, you know, I like the data, right? It tells me what my stuff does and where to use it. But when I'm out there, it, it's me and you, and I'm going to try and get you out. And that's, you know, kind of how I think it should be as, as a pitcher. You have everything that tells you what you should do and why you should do it. But when you're out there, like, you can't be obsessing over that, right? You got to go out there and compete. I'm curious what your approach is when you do eventually encounter some sort of struggle in a, in a situation. Maybe it's a leadoff walk. Maybe it's you give up a, a leadoff double. Like, what, do you, what is your routine when things don't go right are you to be able to refocus and attack the next guy in those pressure situations yeah um with the the pitch slot makes it a little different you don't have as much time to kind of like take that for yourself right and refocus which i think is it doesn't make sense to me right um but no i'll usually look up the foul pole deep breath obviously i'd be a shorter deep breath and it usually is i'll find the top of the foul pole a deep breath i'll tell myself attack the strike zone and i'm back on the mount and that is, you know, even times when it's when it's good, I'm like, okay, this gets me back, this gets me focused, this gets me centered. This is what I do to get back on track. Even if, you know, things are good, things are bad. You know, when I want to execute a pitch or feel like I haven't done that to the best of my capabilities, I'm looking up there, I'm taking my breath, I'm attacking the strike zone, and I'm back on the mound. I'm curious too about your about your strategy for hitting spots. Like when you think about your focal point, are you thinking about like the strike zone as a whole, are you looking at the entire catcher's body and just trying to throw it through the center of him? Are you looking at just the mid? Are you looking at like very small targets or kind of more soft focus, larger targets and just attacking the big target? Uh, I'd say it's pretty soft focus. I'm thinking, you know, up down. I think that there's times where I could, you know, maybe refine the focus and maybe that's my next step in, in doing that is to fine tune it just that little bit more. Um, but I, it's a pretty large focus. Just I'm pretty broadly, go, like I'm trying to attack the, half. the big parts of the strike zone, and after that, then we go here, then we go there. Like you gotta, it's big to to out of the strike zone. Basically, I'm trying to be ahead in the middle, and then go from there. Do you think that pitchers without you know plus plus stuff can can perform that way and still find benefit from simplifying it and and just trying to attack general areas of the strike zone? Or do you think pitchers like softer throwing crafty guys need to be super precise with their focal points no everybody should live on the white you have to live on the white right because even if you're trying to throw a middle middle what are the odds that somebody that's throwing sinkers is going to be middle middle right it's everything starts from being over the plate and ahead right so i would say it is even more important for the guys who don't have plus plus stuff to be over the plate and be ahead because then it, everything goes from there and you can then, you know, use the, you know, maybe your plus command, maybe, you know, you've got something else that plays for you besides elite velocity, et cetera. And to put yourself in the best advantages, you have to be ahead in the count. And I think that throwing to the big part of the plate is where everything starts. I think uh, the, uh, the stand line, I don't yes. know if you're going to, you know exactly where I'm going. Well, stand had a lot of lines. The, the reference to about finding out how good you are. And it, yes, Stan was, it, I don't know if I'm going to misquote but if you want to find out how good you are, throw the ball over the plate, right? That's where it all starts. Um, I also had Steven Mintz, who was my manager in low A, pitching coach in high A. We got into it a couple times because, of course. Um, but Mincy would always say, 
as he was, was going to give it up and going to give it up quick. Right? So throw it over the plate, see what happens. That's you, There's another stand line. Until we find a better way to pitch, throw strike one. I've never met anybody that's better behind in the count than they are ahead. So, and yeah, it's, the ball's got to be over the plate. That's where everything starts. What do you think about this? This idea, this this is more pushed like from high school pitching coaches and college pitching coaches. They're like everybody at the next level, the guys on TV, you know, this idea that they can all just hit their spots every time. Like they're they're missing by six inches, <laughs> you know, eight inches, ten inches. How often do you get away with just blatantly missing your spot and still find a way to, to have success? Watch. I would encourage any pitching coach at any level pull up a Tampa Bay Rays game and watch where our catchers set up and just watch. And they will be surprised one with where they set up and two, how much, like how many times do people absolutely dot a baseball, right? It's, it's not that prevalent, right? You're trying to be in your area, be it up, down quadrant, whatever. But I mean, with us, Frankie and CB are in the middle, right? And then obviously we're doing stuff you know, within that, when you get ahead in the count, et cetera. But like, they're in the middle, be it up in the middle, down in the middle, everything starts over the, the big part of the plate. Yeah, there's, there's some interesting stuff there. Because from the data perspective, one thing I've liked looking at is competitive pitch rate. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a huge Tampa philosophy, but also Morgan Ensberg in AA, he and I talked about this all the time. You're... You're a north-south guy, yes. like I'm an east-west guy, you'd be an east-west guy. But one of the things he was saying, and this is an all-star hitter, right? I mean, Mo had great years in Houston. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at competitive pitches, if we're bucketing, you know, the ball has to be within X inches of the quote-unquote strike zone, mm -hmm. up, down, left, right. If a ball starts off the plate east-west to a certain extent, unless you've got really elite shit that you're backdooring, frontdooring, et cetera, Generally, the hitter doesn't have to make a decision. Right. Like from your standpoint, I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, that probably pertains to you. When you're over the plate, north-south, doesn't matter how high or really how low, a hitter has to make a decision. Yeah. I mean, you see glass get those swings on 45-foot curveballs. Hitter has to make a decision when it's north-south over the plate. Yes, and I think, you know, maybe for like the east-west, how many times do you see east-west guys start something in the middle and it ends up nowhere near the strike zone, right? Like that, even for them, it's obviously you have to play it a little different than just a north-south guy. Actually, uh, Winston McDavis, were you there? For, it was not, it was two years ago, I think. So Winston Doom is our pitching analytics guy and Winston drew a strike zone. And he was trying to talk about tunneling or the myth of tunneling, whatever. And he said, if you're a north-south guy, you just put two dots right in the middle of the strike zone. <laughs> He was like, you just start it all there and let it go that way or that way, right? And it was like, obviously, east-west, you have some, some finagling to do within that, but it's still white, white. It just changes where you are on, you know, that part of the plate. Awesome. Um, I'm curious with kind of switching gears to your mechanics a little bit, because that's something that a lot of people are curious about. They've definitely evolved mm -hmm. over time. You're kind of known as one of these short-arm action guys, like in the conversation with, with the Joe Kellys, the Lucas yeah. Giolitos now. Um, I know we kind of know the backstory, but 
curious, like for people that don't know, how did that come about? Was that a choice you made on your own? Was that a coach that came to you and said, hey, we need to make it, we need to make a change here. And then how did you actually implement that change? Was that just consciously like, I'm just not going to let my arm extend? Was that weighted balls? Was, was that certain drills? How did that whole thing come to be? So I had my second Tommy John in August of 17. And that winter I'm working um, at a facility I worked at in St. Louis, talking to my buddy Andy Marks. I'm like, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change this, right? I don't think what I'm doing is not sustainable for health or for stuff. I was like, I think it's, it will be very much beneficial for me to change this. And I was like, and my first example, right, was Joe Kelly. I was like, he threw like me big long arm swing, changed it and started ripping out 104s fairly frequently. I would say he was, he was frequently throwing very hard. Not that he didn't throw hard before, but it like jumped and was more consistent with that. Um, and so started there, started watching a ton of video. Um, the biggest thing then was once I was cleared right on my rehab, I started doing med ball drills, just like catching here to shot, but just to feel that short stroke and go. Um, so get out to Arizona in April. And I talked to Keith Comstock and our other um, rehab coordinator, Sean Fields, who was the medical. I was like, look, I'm going to do this. I had no, regardless of what you guys say, I would appreciate it. Like, you know, let me try it. Thank you. Tommy was on board. Everybody was, was I could, cool I could it. never see you saying, I'm going to do this no matter what you guys say. <laughs> so from there, it was, um, I had a few, I was able to do a few weighted balls. Um, and just kind of focus on really just pulling it basically from here to here, right? And not letting myself feel like I was swinging it, getting the wrist behind anything. Um, and then I had, let's see, 25, 50, 75. What are we looking at? 150 throws at like eight distances. So if you're looking to, to have your brain change something, making a ton of throws over, you know, a four month rehab program was perfect for me right that's so i had my tj rehab and every throw i'm thinking this is what i'm doing and this is how i'm doing it and then you know i think it all kind of clicked into place between that um getting stronger in the weight room i definitely became a much better athlete over that um that rehab time via or from like just the center of mass core control being able to, to, to move my center better stronger on you know posterior side upper body everything and then kind of once we started getting to 105 120 and on the mound is when the velo really started to kind of click and it was there i also and i've told i've talked to several rehabbers from texas or people that have had tj that i that there's that were, that were there and saw me rehab or i was friends with etc and i was like look for me it was i, I changed the arm action and every part of my rehab with the velocity ranges that Meister gave, I tried to make every throw at the match velocity that they wanted at the time. Um, and were there times where I was ahead? Yeah, like, uh, or above it, and they were frustrated with me? Yes, but like, my goal was to be at the top of, for the entire time, if not you know, one above, as long as I didn't feel like I was physically challenged. Like, it wasn't, didn't feel like it was detrimental to be at that velocity. And that was... That was that in terms of kind of revamping everything and, and putting on a little extra. Yeah. 
And and that was your, just to clarify, I know you hit, hit on this, that was your second TJ. Oh yeah, and my first one at 17. First one. Yeah, first one I was in, I was 17. The second one was in 17. Got it, yes, got it. Did you feel like your lower half mechanics or the rest of your mechanics had to kind of change around to accommodate this this new, shorter, quicker path? Or did you feel like in your, at least in your mind and your, your intent was to kind of keep the same lower half you had before? Uh, I didn't really ever think of the lower half. Um, I, I figured if I changed the arm stroke, however I organized, it was going to be how I organized. Um, and I do, I mean, I think that there's the validity to making sure the lower half is within, I don't think that there's an ideal, right? But I think that there, as long as you are consistent with getting your pelvis open and your arm up at, at foot strike, it'll organize how it needs to organize for you to throw hard or to the best of your capabilities. I think it, it says a lot, especially now, like I think about Brock, right? So two guys who had very, very successful uh, roads off of a TJ. And it's, it's literally just to your point. And I think this requires insane dedication that not many people realize. Like Brock had a pushy arm, was out of plane. He, he had the TJ rehab, he had the bone spurs. So essentially he has 15 months, actually less than that, to completely revamp himself. Mm -hmm. And he does. Right. And he's up four to five miles an hour or more at age 31. Whereas just like in your case, you're fully committing to that. And I think people are scared of that. What, well, I already know your mental side of this one, <laughs> but, but what was like, what was the conscious thing of like, you know what, like, yes, I'm a professional baseball player. And you had thrown relatively hard yeah. out of the old mechanics. And as Ben said, when I showed him the first video of you in slow-mo and this video will be in <laughs> the slow-mo bullpen of you by yourself, crossbody, your arm is so late. Oh, so bad. But it's like, but I mean, you literally just like, like you said, if you throw 95 with shitty mechanics, you're going to throw 100. And fully committing to getting the arm up on time, and here he is. I'm curious from from your your take on how it felt different. Like, you kind of had this intuition, like, I've, got, I've had two TJs, like, something's off. Did it feel like less stress on your arm once you changed it? Did it feel like, hey, my arm's in a better spot? Like, it felt more natural, fluid? Like... Was there a difference in perception of like the stress on your arm or how your arm unwound or, or how easy the, the ball came out of your hand or anything like that once you made the change that you, um, that you knew you were on the right track? Not necessarily. On. I think the, besides changing the arm, I think the biggest for me was the posture as I'm going down the mound. Um, I think that with that being more upright and more kind of stacked from the pelvis up, um, I think that was kind of the biggest thing, like looking back that I've noticed is that like with that, when that is good and I don't feel like I'm going either way, mainly forward, um, everything just feels easy and good. Um, yeah, I, I would say that there definitely doesn't feel, to me, it just feels free. It feels like I'm throwing, like I'm just grabbing the ball and I'm chucking it like I'm in the infield or catching, et cetera. Um, and I, there's still definitely tenants to that in my catch play that I do every day where I'm trying to, you know, move side to side, throw the ball, feel athletic. Um, and yeah, for me, it, it's, I mean, it's still being an athlete. I, 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 I do not want anybody to ever mistake me as having like the show number two, like stock riding number two mechanics. I think that that's, you know, it might work for somebody who needs those constraints, but everybody that's throwing a baseball is athletic and they need to treat it as such. 
pizza, he's a big athletic throwing type guy, like arm action freestyle. You've been doing like the PFA backwards walking throws yeah. for a bit. Um, I mean, I remember, 20, I guess it would have been 2020 camp. I thought him and Andrew Kittredge, I, I, think, <laughs> I think Oliver was a part of this too. I go out, we're playing catch one of the first days and like, I see them taking multiple gloves. All of a sudden, I just see nine ounce balls rocket, <laughs> rocketing at each other. And I'm like, "What? What is going on?" But he's he's always integrating it with something like that on the field in catch play, athletic throws, different weighted baseballs, etc. Like, definitely not scared of the variable stimulus. No, well, I mean, I mean, if you want to really get into it, every baseball that we get from the ump is different, right? There's you're never throwing the exact same thing over and over again. So I also think that in terms of body proprioception, why would you not? Like, there's so many benefits. Like my 11, I throw an 11-ounce ball every day. Feels good to spin. It feels good to make sure that, you know, if you, know, if you can't throw, if, if you throw an 11-ounce ball wrong, it's not going to feel very good, right? So just the stimulus from that, the stimulus from being able to spin it, you can see if it's cutting, if it's dying, whatever, um, to like a clean fuego, which... Good. It might have got me in a bad habit or two that I had to then rectify just from feeling like I'm almost too inside the baseball at times. Um, but that is also something conscious that I have to fight against because I'm better when I'm not. I'm better when I'm on the outside, like these two fingers close to being at the same time, as much as two different length digits can be. Um, yeah, I throw everything. You know. Yeah. I, you love throing. Yeah, I like to throw. How, throwing how did? I'm curious how the the posture changed during that time. Was that was that a conscious focus too? You were trying to shorten up and make the posture more um, awkward, or did that arise? I think, it was, the, I think it kind of arose from not feeling like I was like having to counterbalance to get my arm up in time. Um, just that, and just being more aware of it and and focusing on it. In terms of, I wouldn't say that I focused on it when I threw. Right, this was more of a weight room off the field know, life thing. Um, where that changed and we were able to get a little more synced up from thorax to, to sacrum and go from there. And your slot completely changed. Yeah. Slot so you way were like higher. You were like relative lower as three quarter. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that probably just, I think it's gone up. So in 19, it was, I don't know the exact numbers. It definitely got higher to the end of 19 and 20. And I think that was just from really trying to be like behind it and carry it that I got a little and I didn't do it by I didn't do it by like climbing the arm by itself right it just became more trunk tilt yep. to get up yeah and it makes the death ball play even better yes it does Pete CEO of death death ball death grip death pitch community so kudos to him for that do you want to explain the death pitch to people I mean this is this pitch? is Alex Catchler's thing so Catchler's in charge of this but essentially <laughs> it is the depthy breaking ball with minimal glove side um, different guys can throw it different ways Pete is an elite supinator so his is a little bit different Catchler has brilliant ideas of how to make this work with multiple people but <laughs> essentially it's it's limited glove side movement so like Pete's breaking ball especially visually it'll it'll allude to like straight depth yes and i know you've had some uh talks with analytics folks about calling it a curveball or a yes. slider you can have that debate however yes I'll, I'll just call it the death pitch yeah you know you throw it you name it so and what but it's so it's called a slider it probably profiles i don't know what it profiles as to be honest it's my, splitter move like power splitter my movement, breaking right? ball and uh not as much 
if you throw a splitter at negative Less 10, if you throw a splitter at negative 10, you're the greatest pitcher to ever right. live, I think. Um, but yeah, I just, it's basically a, a modified curveball grip, kind of a fake spike, and I just try and rip it like a curveball, but I throw it hard, right? I, uh, relatively, it's like probably average like 84, 8, 85. Um, and I just try and pull down over the top of it from a high slot, and that limits the, there's been more glove side this year, but it, it limits the, from where my slot is, and I can't necessarily be like that right. through the baseball. It's going to be more straight down than it is a true like curveball profile, total movement. Plays perfect with the north-south ball. It does. It's a I mean, great heck, sometimes ball. your four-seam might have more glove side than the, the There's breaker. been There has been times that my four-seam I mean, I, more I love side. that. That, yes, that makes me, me very happy. Yes. So. Have you specifically focused with your four-seam then on trying to carry it, or is that something that with the postural changes and just the, the change in arm action, that happened organically? You don't have to try to, you know, compensate to get to that higher slot? Um, I mean, I think from just – I think from where my slot has ended up and trying to just really – focus on spinning it as like it's not necessarily like trying to throw it as hard as you can right i'm out there and i'm trying to throw as hard as i can right but it's it's this at the end where you're behind it and you're able to spin it and plus i've cut everything forever and when you cut it right you get more total spin on the ball so i think from that and, and somehow finding that line where it's cut but it's not too much cut that you lose all of um the backspin component of it has been very unique and very just i don't know if it's finger length arm slot perfect blend of all that but it's just kind of worked out because i remember i've cut my four seam even when i was out here the four seam probably had perceived cut on it but i also threw sinkers for some unknown reason you're a little seam shift sinker guy back i was a seam shift sinker guy nice so yeah come a long way yeah bit of bit of a chameleon hey well the good thing is now he throws change-ups that are still labeled as sinkers they are they are still so labeled. You, st as you still have a sinker i still have a sinker technically even though some some people on the internet are trying to call it a splitter which i might technically fall more in that category but i throw it i name it it's a change-up yeah Spare usage, though. Yeah, very spare usage. But Pete gets excited about some of them. Like, he threw, was that to Odor, the one that you spiked, but it had good movement? No, I was not. I did not spike the one. He hit this for a single. This was right before we cleared, by the way, with Torino. So this is the batter. Oh, oh, good. Um, Got you fired up. It was like a 15 and 6. Ends up on the white of the right-handed batter's box. Odor puts it right off the cap and just dribbles it down for an infield swinging bunt single. I was so bad. It was the best one I've ever thrown. Well, I got you teed up for the next day, B. No, that was, turns out, a big misunderstanding of who oh. actually called time. Got it. But got it. I've never been known to take anything personally. So. Never. No. In any sport. Never. Or any realm. And never. I've never done that. Are you a, so are you a long toss guy or you're like a 120 feet? No, I am guy? a, I long toss, but it depends, right? I'm not trying necessarily to replicate mound stress by throwing the ball 300 feet because I'm on the mound frequently during the year, right? So it's it's more of a lob. We'll see how far you know we need to go to feel good, whether it's center field, whether it's you know if I'm coming off of of an inning or a back to back, it stays shorter. Um, just depends on on what I feel like I need at any given day. And you know, I would say a normal like a normal in season day, if I haven't thrown the day before. 
I'll try and stretch it, you know, at center field, be it 220, 240, right? I'm not going mash long toss because I don't have that luxury, right? My job is, is to be ready for the game whenever I'm going in there at 930, right? Not to see what my arm can do with pitcher stretch at 345. But yes, long toss in the off season, I'll get after it when I have the space and the capabilities. What are your thoughts on like frequency on the mound, like frequency of bullpens in spring training and in like late off season? Are you, are you a guy who likes to touch the mound every day, every other day, or you fine with one or two bullpens a week? Uh, I think I threw two pins a week this off season. Um, and maybe I'll change the frequency next off season just to, just to play around with it and kind of get to that. But with how my buildup has been, I have the luxury of going in, throwing pins, trimming that, that time down as spring goes. Um, so it's not necessary. I don't feel like where I'm at in the off seasons, at least right now, I don't have to feel like I'm showing up ready to throw a hundred and, you know, compete. It's, and this mainly has been from Snyder's to trying to just like calm down. Like you have a buildup time built in, you need to use it and not feel like it's, I'm peaking and then I'm jumping back to square, you know, to bullpens and then going again from there. Do you, do you try to touch the slope at all with like your plow care stuff? Um, or do you have any sort of like dry rep, like off day thing where you like, like anything like um, that, where you're, you're just trying to feel the slope or you don't really feel like you need that to stand? Um, in season, if I need to touch the slope, I'll throw, right? I'll get off, I'll throw five, whatever. Um, off season, I did throw more mound stuff this year um, with you guys than I have in the past. And I think, I would say it was beneficial, but I also kind of overdid it a little bit, had a little shoulder annoyance towards the end of the off season that I had to deal with. Um, so I think as long as I do it within reason, I, I did like doing some extra mound stuff. Um, I was thinking it might've contributed to me tipping a little bit early in camp, just due to the cadence of effort for fastballs, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you eventually do need to be on the mound frequently, right? Because that is how, that's where the money is made. That's where you're, where you need to be to, to produce. And so the more comfortable and the more, you know, synced up you are with feeling athletic on the mound and within your delivery, I think is important. This is a question for both you guys, but you know, just with all the experience with the Rays organization, what's one thing that you think you, both of you think they do differently than other orgs, like for, for better, like what's, what's a competitive advantage that they have that you maybe don't see in other orgs? They're really good arm talent. <laughs> scouting side <laughs> yeah I, I mean i've said this for years like kevin eibach and the pro scouting side is where the money's made i mean they they acquire so much talent um and not to say that there's like not final pieces of right. quote-unquote development that you can put on somebody but nine times out of ten that's <laughs> telling somebody like pete that he needs to throw the ball over the plate in north south like it's not, it's not an ability change. Yes, it, it's, they have done the most incredible job at finding arm talent and then telling the arm talent, hey, you guys are really talented and your stuff's really good. How about we just try throwing strike one? 
and we go from there. And I think just how the message is presented from Winston, from Snides, from Stan when he was there, now Monkey and everybody, to get people to buy in, just throw your shit over the plate because it's really good and see what happens. And I think that that has just been something that everybody has kind of jumped on and ran with. It's it's like a, and you this especially pertains to Pete. I mean, in our all of our models, the last three years, he's had a top five fastball. Could be top one, class A oftentimes gets yeah, in there. Yeah, well, cutters, whatever. What, yeah. Whatever. You're top five though. <laughs> but but it's it's like for him, it's a validation of how good he is. It's not like, oh, hey Z, what was my stuff plus on my fastball today? Yeah. It's like, you don't care about that on a pitch by pitch basis. It's just like, hey, overall, yeah. with this amount of sample size, we know your fastball is top 1%. So why don't you just like, why don't you throw it with the confidence that it is top 1%? Yeah. And then people start doing that and they're successful. It's a very, it seems like a very different approach than some orgs where it's like, you sign a guy with a certain arsenal to then completely scrap it and try to reinvent the wheel. And now everyone's throwing sweepers one year or all these sinker guys are now going to carry four seams the next year. And it's like constantly chasing the next thing and trying to reinvent the wheel with these guys. Whereas the Rays are just like identify it and then allow it to just kind of blossom. Yeah, look at, look, so let, let's just look at our bullpen this year for an example, right? You have Thompson, you have Kevin Kelly, who are both low slot, big variability guys. Then you have Poche, who throws left-handed super carry cutters. Um, who else? J.A., who, I mean, it maybe has the biggest isosceles triangle I've ever seen in terms of fastball changeup, fastball breaking ball changeup. Um, yeah, it's, it's not about making people fit your mold. It is about finding what they're good at and telling them how to use it. I mean... You look at you look at Tampa right now. Shane, yeah. Shane is the only pitcher that's homegrown. Yeah. Right. Uh. Well. Uh, yeah. I mean, in the rotation right yeah. now. I mean, because you got Rass, who's a trade. Yep. Eflin sign. Um, Flynn's homegrown. Yanni. Yanni. Yanni's homegrown. Yanni. So yeah. So we got yeah three a couple. Guys. But I, I look at the bullpen of who filters through there and like. It's all acquired guys. I mean, you Glasnow, Boz, Pete, J.A., Poche, Beeks. You, yeah. you look at a lot of the staples. Again, it's identify the talent. It's may or may not be getting utilized. Acquire it. Off you go. Yeah. This is how you utilize it and, and go. And that was, you know, for me, the biggest thing when they did trade for me. Um, and getting calls from that night from Eric from Kyle, from, from Cashy. And the message right away was, we think you are good and this is what we're gonna do. And then getting to Durham with Knapp and him saying, look, the arm talent's there. Maybe we tweak one thing or maybe we just, you know, see how good you are and let's, let's try and attack the plate and, and see what it is, right? And that was, um, I mean, I can remember seeing that corner kind of change in Durham as I, just started kind of buying in after a rush stretch and just I'm going to throw this over the plate and I'm going to be confident about throwing it over the plate and we're going to see what happens and then it was like it was a huge switch for me yeah one of the really cool things that they did I know you didn't come up with Tampa but Dewey Robinson who I spoke about uh, in reference on another podcast he's with the Pirates now but 
one of the things when I first signed in 17, there was a, a mandate in place that through a pitcher's first 30 to 45 days, maybe even two months, you don't change anything with them. Like, also that, that comes down to like trusting your scouting departments, whether that's amateur or pro side acquiring a guy. It's like, we acquired them for a reason. Yes. And so we're not gonna try to reinvent the wheel in the first month or two. And I think that that carries a lot of weight. That'd be nice if other orgs would implement that same type of rule. I don't know why people don't. I mean, we're literally saying how simple this is, but somehow it still <laughs> just continues to happen. It's mind-boggling, really. Do you want to get into some of your fun questions? Yes, me? yep, I do. I got, I got a couple submissions from, from the Twitter I do. Here, well, so. the, first, the first one, I want to just... I want to get this one out there because I think it'll provoke a good discussion. I love uh, Mason McRae, one of our data interns. He is the inventor of the TPD scale. <laughs> I love it. The taste per dollar. Give me your number one on the taste per dollar continuum. I have an idea of where you'll go. I hope I'm right, but we'll see. Taste per dollar. Yeah. Are we going like restaurants? Are we going in specific it, like well, ingredients? It's, it's it's anything. It's just per dollar the most amount of taste you're getting. This is a real tough one because there's some where I don't. I'll, I'll use this for example. So we went to a place called Jacobs in Toronto, had a little bullpen dinner, and they comped us some wagyu, which. For me, it doesn't. It's too fatty, right? It's okay. it's almost too rich. So I gotta. I think I'm going on like the opposite end of the spectrum from that as to how little dollar, how much taste. That's generally where the scale goes. Um, off the top, I think Emo's Pizza. Okay. Which is a St. Louis style pizza. The majority of the world does not like Emo's. Now the St. Louisans love Emos, and I would say their pepperoni bacon taste per dollar is is pretty good. Um, in terms of, yeah, I would say Emos is up there. When I called when I called you the other day, you oh, were, we're talking about God's chicken. We were talking about God's, God's chicken. chicken. I thought you were going to say that was a number I, one. I TPD. was thinking about this. Chick-fil-A, in case you didn't get yes, it. Yes, Chick-fil-A is Scotch gotcha, chicken. Gotcha. Not to be irreverent, but that's a funny way to describe What's it. What's your order at Chick-fil-A? Um, so, I'm a peanut allergy guy. I get, recently got over my fear of peanut oil because it's not an allergen since it's processed so much. Um, you and Rylan are basically the same guy. Same guy. So, I will... It depends. Recently, I've been, I've been crushing the spicy sandwiches. They're delicious. Um, I also go out on a limb and say Chick-fil-A's grilled chicken... Pretty good taste per dollar for grilled chicken. Their grilled chicken, be it the nuggets or I like to order at times, just get the regular bun, get the, the bun that's terrible for you, throw some pickles and a grilled piece on it. Pretty tasty. Uh, but yeah, I would Chick-fil-A is definitely up there on the taste per dollar. Cane's is up there on the taste per dollar. Um, that's, a good, that's a good couple. You could get into a, a real deep debate of of burger places and taste per dollar because how much better so we'll use like five guys right. and we'll use five guys and wendy's you like wendy's no not what, really what's your what's your fat fast food burger what are we doing i mean ben says we I know can't ben eat. doesn't he says, I can't, not a he says yeah. I can't eat it because i'm fat 
He's my we're body composition challenged. So we'll go, we'll but, say like a Sonic burger. But I'm with you. I'm and, with you. and Five Guys. Is it, is that extra four bucks of a Five Guys burger really worth it if you're going by units of TPD? I That's, saw, but I, I saw something that Five Guys doesn't have seed oils and everybody's raving about seed oils. So I don't know. Because it's all peanut oil? Yeah. Five Guys is pretty fire, though. I will say. It is. I good. think that it I think good. that the extra money you spend that bumps up that yeah. pace per dollar is definitely worth it. You get better pickles. You get better beef. The see the uh, sesame seed bun, like it's pretty good. Details matter. The details do matter. Um, next thing we should discuss. And do you have a TPD? What's Chick, your Chick Fil A? Chick Fil A, undoubtedly. Yeah. And also their reward system is incredible. Okay. You gotta. So if we're gonna if we're gonna throw out a different angle on this, which is like broke college players trying uh, to cook for themselves. I'm going to I'm going to nominate chicken thighs and I'm going to nominate when you're making rice, get a rice cooker and put rice vinegar in that rice. It makes a huge difference and chicken thighs are like a dollar a pound. Like you can get them crazy cheap. I in fairness, the chicken thighs are underrated. Yeah. Yeah. They are a little fattier, they are a little tougher, but they are also maybe the most flavorful if you cook them well. Bake them a little salt, a little paprika. A little rice, some rice vinegar in there, some salt. I'm gonna need some more flavor. Two dollars a pound for the chicken flavor. thighs. I'm gonna need I some mean, more flavor. Ben, you can tell where Ben's coming yeah, from. Yeah, Ben does not no. eat for pleasure. Is what he, I'm getting. No, he does not. It, it's all dialed <laughs> all to his routine. Yeah, there yeah, you go. I mean, down to the freaking grain of rice. I'm like, just live a little. I'll, actually, I'll give you another sleeper taste for a dollar. Eckerd Ranch Black Angus beef. Now the taste for dollar is great because it's pretty low because it's my mom's family farm. Wow. So. Yes, they, I still, even when I go to steakhouses, something about steaks from the cattle that come from an Eckerd Ranch that my parents would always get yep. for Christmas from uh, Nana, as we call her, as my mom's mother. That beef is, will always be my favorite. Nice. Um, for, for the listeners, and I hope there are some that really <laughs> take advantage of this opportunity, I want you to discuss your... Um, well, well, first off, let me just circle back. Uh, let's go to what you texted me about a week ago about a proposition that came to your mind that you are now following through on. Oh, we're talking, we're talking cards here? Yeah. So, yes, the blanket way. If you, this is, I actually saw, so this probably stems subconsciously from Jamal Williams, right? Jamal Williams now a Saints running back, I believe. Yes. Yep. But when he was with the Lions, he would, sign whatever do whatever for people and they all brought them like anime manga you know stuff like that um so i my buddy drew millis who was our catcher he was caught for me and flim in the off season big like huge into pokemon cards and so i was like oh i was like you got any blazikins this is my favorite pokemon like you got the cards he sold me four and i've been you know buying up collecting a little bit since then so anybody wants autograph stuff i'll even try and sneak it from other people that you might want more than me send me pokemon cards bring them to the field we'll get it going i had somebody brought him a signed hat he gave me a pack pulled a nice gyarados card from the scarlet violet set that just came out um yeah I, it's a fun little way for me to kill time do something collectible etc because i have been building legos but it's tough to build on the road and then have to transport them back. Right, right. Um, but yes, shout out to my realtor who got me the Star Destroyer UCS. It's like four feet long, 43 inches long. It's almost four feet long. It's 
I cannot wait, and I cannot wait for it to become just an thing that you cannot store. You don't know where to put it in a house, and I'm thinking that I should just put it right on the middle of the dining room table would be a great centerpiece. That's where it belongs. Probably. It is where it belongs. And then the, the fun part will be Isaac, who is Pete's three-year-old son. He's going to want to make it a playset. He is. I will not let him. I think. We'll figure it out. You know, he might be able to play with it while it's stationary, but like, if I build this million-piece Star Destroyer and he breaks it, I will probably resent him for at least a week. <laughs> I will be so mad for at least a week till I can rebuild him. No, I won't. He's, uh, he's done actually a lot better. He enjoys, goes through phases where he loves building. So he'll want to build sets and we'll get Star Wars stuff. Loves somehow stormtroopers, clone troopers are obviously his favorite because he's three and they look cool. Um, but he goes through phases of it where he likes them, doesn't like them, et cetera. So it's, it's always great to try and build something with him. And he will get like one bag of pieces in and it'll help. And then I'll be like, I want to play with it and take the minifigures and leave. Ah, so. Well, it's good bonding time for you guys. Yeah, it, it's fun. He's uh, he is a character. But you you told me last night at dinner, I mean, this this Pokemon card business could get serious. It could. It could. So we, my buddy Drew, Flem and I, we are trying to offload a bunch of him. Not Drew. Millis. So Drew, we'll call him Millis for this. Everybody knows Drew is Millis whatever so millis is like deep into it he just put up a latios latios tag team on our ebay site which is a 10 psa 10 tag team their heads are together in a heart and ungraded it's like a 500 card right so he is deep into it like the big money singles he's all in on whereas i am finally i think graduating from just wanting to rip packs because it's fun and, and getting stuff into you know these are the cards we're after. This is what we're going to do and actually turn it into something where you can collect instead of just being like, oh, I now have eight cards out of this 10 card pack that I don't know what to do with. So if any tread listeners want to buy a bunch of reverse and crappy hollows, I have three boxes full of commons, reverses and non full art hollows that I need to offload. There you go. See, this is what I'm talking about. Checking out and checking in signs a extension. And I get a text message fired up about a $25 Pokemon card. It's the little things in life. It's it, is, it, it is. You, I think, so this was actually, uh, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his actual name. We called him Goose. He was an old pitching coach. He was like, uh, I think, I don't know if it was 2000, it might've been 2000, right before the one World Series. He was with, um, Arizona. Oh my gosh, I cannot think of his name. I'm going to have to look this up eventually. We called him Goose. He was a special advisor. Um, Got it. He's good friends with Danny Clark, who's our pitching coordinator with Texas. And he talked about how you had to have stuff to do off the field. Like you had to have off the field hobbies. And that's something that I very much took to heart because you can't, I mean, it can't just all be baseball. You'll right. lose your mind. Right. Right. There has to be other stuff that you are interested in that you like that you you know you have to have hobbies yeah i don't i don't know anybody <clears throat> who's fully consumed by training and just baseball pitching i know i'm drinks about it all the time yeah i don't i don't know but it is fun to be in a clubhouse of guys who are diverse in interest yes. i mean like in 19 playing like this bridge building game yeah, in the clubhouse great. yeah it's awesome it is you have to have 
hobbies. Have to. Have to. Now, um, if you don't have to play for a living, I think that training could be a hobby. Got it. Right? It could be a, you know, it that, be an outlet. Yeah, it can, it's an outlet, right? I think it's, you know, for somebody that, you know, I'm, we're out there competing and we're, we're still, you know, playing and we're in that realm, like that consumption is unhealthy. But, you know, if that is where, what you have to do to be where you need to be. Right. You know, let it consume you and then find a hobby later. Right. Which is why I'm a pro sim racer now. Yes. As well. Yes. Yeah. Um, I got, I actually just got this question a few minutes ago. Uh, I was requested to ask if you could be a superhero or a villain, who would you be? I could be a superhero or a villain. Yeah, I mean, let's pick whoever. Um, I think I'm going Dick Grayson. The original Robin turned into Nightwing. Uh, he's like Batman, but without all of the mental illness. Some of the mental illness, not all of the mental illness that Batman undoubtedly has. Got so, it. Yeah, that's my, that's my pick. He's great. Humorous. Um, pretty skilled hand-to-hand -hand combatant for someone yeah. with no superpowers. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go Nightwing. If I had to go villain, I thought you might go Jeff Passan as a superhero. Oh, uh, Jeff Passan. Are we getting Twitter Jeff Passan, or are we getting uh, non-Twitter Jeff Passan? Because he could he could swing as more of like what, an anti-hero. What was your perception of him last night? I uh, the fucking national treasure. Uh, it's something. It is. I mean, a plus storyteller, obviously, as you would. Uh, I don't. I don't know if he does like frequent like podcasts or anything, but I think he's. I think he's underutilized as a as as a potential podcaster. Yeah, he needs to stop writing so much. I mean, I, I do love a good, do yeah, a good yeah. article, but I think Passon would be an incredible podcaster. It's hilarious. It is hilarious. Sorry. Anyways, you're villain. off off tangent. Off on a tangent. There's super villain. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I think that uh, I would almost say like a like a Doctor Doom type, somebody who's morally questionable, but not like deranged. Got it. Like you know. It kind of rules out all of like Batman's Rogues Gallery because they all have serious issues. Yeah. Are you a um, Harry Potter guy too? Yeah. Oh yeah. You are. Yes. Big Harry Potter guy. Who's your Who's your person in Harry? Potter? Who's my person in Harry Potter? I just watched the full series with Mariah last did, week. Did you read the full series? I did not read it. I did not read oh, it. Fuck. I um, mean, I will. I will tell you this. Sam Eads. I brought up Harry Potter. This guy like starts crying. He's like every movie because he knows that the series is ending. He cries. He is that invested. He could tell me every spell. It's incredible. Interesting. Um, I think, like as a whole, the Marauders were probably the most interesting, right? I wish we got more of Harry's parents, Sirius, Remus, when they were all young. I think that yeah. would be uh, a very interesting route. I mean. In terms of main series characters, I don't know. I kind of like Oliver Wood just because he was a Quidditch-obsessed lunatic. I think that that is just You're telling great. me an obsessed lunatic? Does that relate to you or what? Uh, not to Oliver Wood's extent of, like, 
Quidditch is the end all be all, but like maniacally competitive. Yeah. That part I very much got it. And granted, I know it's it's not. I wish there was more Quidditch. Yeah. Right. I think that's very unusual. You a Harry Potter guy? A little bit. I've okay. seen them all. I've all read right. them all. All right. Uh, I got two. Oh. One person asked, "How do you go so long without blinking on the mountain?" Look, I don't know where this thing started. It it is. It's not a conscious or like it's it's not something that I fucking think about, right? It just is. You're I'm just out locked there. In. I'm You're just trying to. I'm just trying to compete. You're trying to take the you know? All the it, other stuff, I'm not thinking about it's, it. It's actually incredible though, looking at it from like having sat with you in a bullpen and then yeah. just seeing you throughout time. Like he'll be like that, like on your rehab stint last year. In Charlotte, he's pitching. He's locked, right? So the eyes are going. As people say, he's shooting laser beams out of the <laughs> eyes. And he he threw a, for funsies, he threw a right-on-right change up to Eloy Homer. Yeah. And so, like, you don't, you know, you're sitting in the dugout, psycho guy. You know how it is. You don't want to, like, say, like, yeah. oh, like, good job, whatever. But Pete's the type of guy, like, as soon as he's off the mound, he knows he's done. It's, like, check back out. And he's like... What the fuck was I doing? Like, I wanted to throw it, man. I wanted to throw it. But but it's not like it carries over super long. So you're at, right as you cross the foul line, you're, you're back. Yeah, I it. mean, uh, unless it's been like a very bad one and I'll throw some shit. But once I once it's out of my system, it's out of my system. Uh, All right, next thing. What Which baseball movie do you think captures professional baseball the best? Either minor league, a minor league movie or a major league movie. What captures baseball the best? I don't know if any of them do a great job of yeah. it. I don't know if any do a great job of it. Because, um, yeah, I don't. I don't really like. There's not. There's not many of them where I. Have seen it and been like, oh, like that tracks. Um, I do love the scene. Is it in Bull Durham where Nuke Lelouch is on his stupid guitar and Crash Davis gets real pissed at him? I can that, I can, that sounds right. I can definitely relate Nothing to that. Captures the clubhouse dynamics. No, it's such a it is such a unique place, and it is also such a place that is alternates between just absolutely deranged and unhinged at times. I think, I think Passon said it best last night. He said, and we were going through teammates yes. who we've enjoyed. Yes. If you want to hear one of the, <laughs> one of the best in-depth conversations about a variety of topics you could ever imagine, <laughs> you go to a bullpen. If you want to hear some of the worst <laughs> conversations ever, go to the bullpen. You will, you will find them there. Mm-hmm. It just depends on who's talking. Who's the biggest character on the Rays right now? Big league side. Um, I mean, probably Jason Adam. In terms of, like, bullpen, probably J.A. Um, character, and, I mean, I think Rand, both Randy and Siri are both characters in their own right. Um, but for, like, the people that we got to go sit down there with for eight innings every day... Uh, J.A. is a riot. He is a funny individual. Um, personal favorite for me is Poche, but that is just because Poe and I are on an incessant 
shit talking bender with each other. I mean, it is, and it's been like that for <laughs> as long as I can remember since I'd say probably since, uh, it probably last year, I think it was when we really, we really developed into full form. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's such a wide variety of personalities because you have Kevin Kelly, who I am 100% convinced works for TurboTax in his free time. <laughs> But it goes out there and it's just absolutely nasty. You know, it, it's such a wide array of personalities, et cetera. And the great thing about that is none of it matters, right? Like you can all be characters, but everybody goes out there and yeah. tries to do the same job, which I think is fun. All right. Let's steer it back to a real question. Final question. Okay. The other one's not real. Not real. Who's Fugazi Fugazi. Who's going to win the NBA it's finals? It's a wazzy, it's a woozy. Okay. You're NBA. trying to sneak one more in? Yeah, NBA finals. Okay. That's what's important right now. Um, Adam's laugh. I would love pizza, a huge basketball guy. I would love a Nuggets Celtics final, I think would be a fun one. Or I would also love to see Jimmy Butler putting the entire 305 on his back again. Um, one of those two. I would love for either, I would think, I would say either Celtics or Heat would probably be my choice of, of teams to win it. You're not a Celtics guy, though, Tatum guy? Just Tatum. Yeah, yeah. just St. Louis guy. Got it. Got it. The, the staples of St. Louis, Pete Fairbanks, Tatum, Brad Beal, and Nelly. <laughs> John Hamm. There you go. John Hamm. John Hamm. Take me off the list. Put John Hamm on there. All right. Sorry. Back to your whatever question. Final real question. Okay. One piece of advice to younger players. It could be to, or it could be to <laughs> you like 15 years ago or any younger players watching it. Just be crazy. I mean, what, what's, what's, the, what's the secret? What's the advice you would have given to yourself? Um, <laughs> this is not something that anybody's ever had to tell me, but give it like, give a shit and everything that you do, give a shit because that is at the core, what it takes for you to do anything, not just baseball, whatever care, right. And let that, that passion, that caring, that desire to want to be good or in whatever it is, your, your desire and, and your passion about whatever your interest is, be it, if it's baseball, great. If it's soccer, if it's Star Wars. Yeah, if it's math, if it's, you know, you say you want to become an animator, like give a shit. Yeah. Because that truly is what, the, it, that's what it takes. You have to care and you have to care a lot. I mean, we, we were talking about something last night at the game about a major league player and like tweaking things. Yeah. And did you bring up the point of like, you can change a pitch grip? Yes, I, uh, yes, I, I don't, I don't want to misquote you. I will, I will, this would be verbatim. I said, it's easy to move your fingers, but it's hard to give a shit, right? And that's, you have to, you have to, you have to care. And that is where it's definitely all started for me because I've given a shit about baseball and sports and winning and all of that for as long as I can remember, often to my own detriment, but uh, yeah, you have to care. And that you can call it whatever words you want, passion, obsession, giving a shit, caring at its core is what matters to do whatever you want to do in this life.